Hello and welcome to the first Blood and Thunder podcast of the World Cup season. Uh, it is me, Tom Savage. You're listening to TRK Premium. And this podcast is brought to you by the lovely people at NTES. Uh, so check them out at nts.com. They kindly uh, sponsor this podcast and my team sheets on TRK Premium. Uh, they do great specialized IT, IT support uh, and infrastructure. So check them out if that's something that you or your business needs. Um, we're into the World Cup season and we're into all of the drama, all of the, the pressure that comes with it. I, I think... For the first time, uh, I think under Schmidt, and I think in general, Ireland as a rugby playing country, we haven't dealt well with expectation when it comes to the World Cup and when it comes to, I suppose, what we should expect as a as a country, as a team heading into a World Cup. And if we go back to the different cycles and coaches that there's been, I think... You know, the initial World Cups, we were also ends. You know, Moldova plus. And we went, uh, you know, into the 2000s. All of a sudden, we started to be a team who were picking up decent results in the Six Nations and became more of a threat to be worried about. Um, at the same time, we didn't manage to get past that quarterfinal stage. That has been the case for the entirety of the World Cup um, the Rugby World Cup since it's been a thing Ireland has not won a knockout game which you would think we would have done it accidentally at least once <laughs> but it's been the case where we just haven't managed to do it and I think as the World Cup and I think as standards in, in, in rugby in general have increased it's becoming incrementally harder for Ireland to do that along with the expectation that was there because if we go back and we look at, we'll say, Warren Gatland, we look at Eddie O'Sullivan, and that led into Declan Kidney, and that led into Joe Schmidt, and now we see it leading into uh, Andy Farrell and how well Ireland have done over the last four years. We can see that with each coach, there's been a raise in expectation and a raise in, in levels. I think the first time I can recall Ireland going into a World Cup with like genuine dark horse style vibes about us would have been 2007 uh, in France actually and that was a nightmare World Cup an absolute nightmare it's something I'm thinking about getting on uh, Owen and, and, and Jeff to talk about at some stage I haven't even spoken to them about it it's just, just something in my head uh, to do when I was building up for this podcast um, the scale I suppose of the, the fuck up that led to like an inquiry almost like they created a report off the back of that um, off the back of that World Cup given how fucking bad it was um, that changed a lot of what we do in Ireland actually from a rugby perspective but that was the, the first time I think that Ireland went into a World Cup with that dark horse vibe and then just absolutely shat the bed and it was it's so difficult to understand at the time as well like Ireland like this was just before I mean, well two years before Ireland won the Grand Slam but we had so many British and Irish Lions in the squad at that point. Munster had just won a, a Heineken Cup the year before. Um, Leinster were kind of ascending at that point as well. They were getting to a point where they you know, would end up eventually winning a Heineken Cup. But there were some all-time great players in that team. The likes of Ronan O'Gara, David Wallace. These were guys at their at their peak. Um, Donnacoe Callaghan, Brian O'Driscoll. Um, you know, you had guys like Dennis Hickey. You had just these quality players in and around the, the the squad at that time and playing really, really good rugby. And under Eddie O'Sullivan at the time, we had been consistently winning 
um, Grand Slam, or not, not Grand Slams, we've been consistently winning Triple Crowns. We had always just missed out on the likes of a Grand Slam. I think, you know, you go back to 2007, the Six Nations of that year, um, we just missed out on a slam by the bounce of a ball, in my opinion, um, with that, uh, was this Clark fucking hell difficult to difficult to think about really the bounce of a ball that went away from John Hayes and they ended up scoring under the under the posts and the, 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 the lead we had evaporated but Ireland were playing good rugby we had beaten some decent teams in the Six Nations and look there was no talk about Ireland winning a World Cup at that stage but you would expect look we'll get past the quarterfinal stage and if you get to a semi-final who knows what can happen that's kind of the way that, that we were thinking at the time and, and there was certainly a lot of expectation around and I think the way Ireland approached that World Cup from the start was it led to a lot of frustration it led to a lot of um, of guys not playing a whole ton of rugby and then there was the a World Cup warm up I think it was was it played in I'm not sure who it was against I think a French club team where it was basically fucking World War 3 uh, where lads were getting beaten up um, there was you know fights there I think there was was it one of the players who got a, a fairly hefty black eye whatever it was either way the World Cup itself was a complete letdown from an Irish perspective we were in a tough pool to be fair but we were struggling with the teams that we should have been beating really really easily we almost lost to Georgia we were playing incredibly poorly in the other games as well and deservedly went home in the pool stages and that led to a bit of a, a rethink and a reset um, for Ireland. I think that, you know, we I think we'd signed Eddie O'Sullivan to a long-term contract, I think, before that World Cup, um, off the back of how well Ireland had been doing up to that point. But we head into De- the Declan Kidney era. Ireland won a Grand Slam for the first time in 2009. The World Cup was coming up again in 2011 down in New Zealand. We had brought through some good young players, like of Stephen Ferris were coming into that squad as well there was an awful lot to be positive about we still had I mean generational talents and generational players who were still playing and still active alongside guys like Johnny Sexton who were beginning to emerge and finally for the first time in you know what seemed like you know a decade uh, we had somebody who was able to alternate with Ronan O'Gara at the very least so that was again a bit of a letdown we had a great result I think we beat Australia got into a quarter final against Wales a team that we had regularly beaten up until that point and lost the quarterfinal an eminently winnable one that we had lost and we were home early again and that led us into 2015 where we lost to Argentina in that quarterfinal with the caveat being that we had lost um, I think four or five starters due to either injury or suspension prior to that game and we, and we lost it we were blown away really to be honest and 2019 had similar to 2007 style vibes as well where a coach maybe who'd stayed on a little bit too long um, the I think th- what we've seen in the press and from press conferences and in the last couple of uh, of of days we've seen the, the the prep for that 2019 World Cup getting the uh, the 2007 treatment with regards to how the players now are feeling about it or that they're comfortable talking to other players about it because it's certainly coming out now that they didn't feel it was ideal although nobody brought that up at the time but this is kind of where we're at. Uh, that led us into the 2023 World Cup where Ireland go into it not as dark horses again you look at 2019 Ireland the previous year were world number one but you look at the you know beating the All Blacks at the time you know and you look at the the year that followed 
there's no way you could say that Ireland were favourites going into that World Cup. In name only, you would say, if you were going to be throwing at that, because our Six Nations was terrible, our warm-ups were fucking god-awful, and you head into the World Cup itself, it seemed like we limped in there to a certain extent. And we struggled with the heat, we struggled with the conditions, and, you know, that leads us to this year, where there are no caveats. For me, this is a World Cup that Ireland absolutely are favourites to at least be in the final, and... Like if we're to play, who who like who would be playing the final? You're looking at like so France, maybe. You're looking at uh, New Zealand if the, the 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 first game of the season goes or the first game of the tournament goes. Uh, you know, to to the All Blacks instead of France. You could be looking at England. You could be looking at Australia. In any other game, would you expect Ireland to beat those teams? Yes, and the reason why we say that is because we have done just that. We have beaten all of these teams. In the last 18 months, we've beaten New Zealand in New Zealand in a series. We have beaten England. We have beaten Australia. We've beaten South Africa. We finally beat France after not being able to beat them for the last three or four years or whatever it was. This Ireland team is number one in the world on merit. Instead of limping through the Six Nations as we did in 2019, we run a Grand Slam. And now we're at a point where it is the World Cup's coming up. We're starting our warm ups. This Irish team, for me, has to be looking at this tournament as one that it can win. Now, I've been over again what it would mean to rugby in this country if Ireland were to win a World Cup. Like, winning a, winning a Grand Slam is great. Like, certainly for a guy like me coming up where you only remember Ireland losing, collecting wooden spoons. Winning Grand Slams and having, and having it be something like, okay, that's great, but we want something bigger. And to see Ireland beating New Zealand in New Zealand, we never, I, I never thought I would see this, but when you look at Ireland, the potential of winning a World Cup, that goes outside the rugby bubble. Like, if Ireland win a Grand Slam, the likes of us, who are listening, you're listening to this now, listening to me talk, you're obviously a rugby fan already, you understand that there's, you know, a history with that, and it's, it's a good thing, it's a good achievement in and of its own right. A World Cup is a different story. A World Cup takes you from... You know if you're a band and you're a rock band and you do a particularly well-received rock album, it's really appreciated and really popular amongst the, the people who are into that genre. But if you can make an album that transcends that genre and brings you to Coldplay levels, which I'm quite topical at the moment because I went through an ordeal to get tickets for that, you end up going mainstream. And it's not that rugby isn't the mainstream sport in Ireland, but I, I think if you're here, you know that there's, we'll say Premiership Soccer is the most popular. Then you're looking at the GAA, which is close enough behind that as well. And then you have the rugby, Irish provinces, you know, the national team and so on and so forth behind that. I think if Ireland can win the World Cup, it won't make rugby more popular than the GAA or, you know, the English Premier League or whatever it is overnight. But I think it will move rugby up a level to where it's considered more or less equal with those sports, for the most part. That's what the value of winning a World Cup does. It means that you have a bunch of new people being interested in rugby. There's a huge commercial aspect to it as well. But that's what success brings. It brings new fans. It brings new sponsorship. It brings in new revenue streams outside of sponsorship. It makes the whole thing bigger. And that in itself would be just massive considering where Ireland was as a rugby playing country back in the 90s, which again is getting further and further away now, but it's not that long ago to be thinking where Ireland can go from being, you know, wooden spoon collectors to World Cup winners in 
the time it takes to go from 1999 to 2023 that in itself would be a massive massive achievement and would change the like the, the the way rugby is perceived in this country for forever i think and that is a massive massive thing to shoot for but even just on if like if that's too big a picture just look at the players there look at the what that would do for you know the likes of a peter romani or for a johnny sexton if he's to win a world cup this year you can make an argument that's one of the greatest rugby careers that anybody's ever had and you look at the i suppose the the scale of the opportunity that's there where Ireland have beaten everybody that we would realistically expect to face in a big knockout game coming up in this, you know, World Cup, whoever we end up playing. We've beaten everybody. We've beaten everybody that we might be expected to beat. We've we've beaten Scotland. We've beaten South Africa all in the last year. If we get to the semi or the quarter final out of that, we'd be either playing France or New Zealand. We've beaten them in the last year. So what is there to fear? What's there to, you know, start going, ah, yerra, 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 about, like, for me, Ireland have to own the fact that we are number one in the world, we are the favourites, we are going to be approaching into this World Cup with a massive target on our back, as I've already been speaking about on the, you know, World's Most Wanted series, which I've got uh, another two instalments coming in the next couple of days on that. But this is the importance and the scale of this challenge that we have coming up the scale of this opportunity not to give it a bit of a it's not a challenge it's an opportunity we have an opportunity to change rugby in this country and there's a squad there that's more than good enough to do it and part of me thinks that as much as we like talking about x's and o's and fucking you know your 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 tactics and your shapes and your progressions and your frameworks in this uh podcast and others um Part of me thinks as well it'll come down to pressure and the ability to handle pressure. There's been very good Ireland teams who have been much better than what they've shown in knockout games in the World Cup, where they've either blown it or through, you know, bad luck with injury, they've ended up coming in wounded and getting put away by good teams. Because there's very few very, very few poor teams that end up in the uh, in, in, in the quarterfinal stage of the World Cup. And I think a, a, a constant for Ireland in that time is is that when the pressure has come on and there is a lot of pressure in those World Cup knockout games we have not been able for it and that's the big challenge for the bulk of this team we know that you know coming up into the 2019 World Cup prior to that Leinster had won the Heineken Cup and Ireland won a Grand Slam now there wasn't a massive amount of pressure on the Grand Slam itself in that it wasn't a shootout where either we're winning a slam or they're winning a slam and it's all on the line and it's all coming down to one game, one match. Uh, if you remember in 2018, like Ireland more or less had the Six Nations won coming into that, more or less. Um, England at the time had already lost to, to France. Um, Ireland were, you know, I, I think the, the best team in the tournament at that point. Um, and I think that... England at the time could stop Ireland from winning the slam but for for Ireland it was all about getting something that was pretty much already there Uh, Leinster won the Heineken Cup that year also Uh, and then that didn't really translate the year afterwards where Ireland when it came to big pressure games we looked kind of kind of cooked kind of washed now you hear stories you know in that time where I was hearing in 2019 early that that Irish team were exhausted mentally and physically 
And I'm thinking, well, geez, that's not good coming up into a World Cup because some, that, that's not something that can be easily freshened up. You might think, oh, sure, there's fucking eight months there for them to get to get their head right. There's so much other rugby that's going on as well. There's so many other different things that are going on, never mind in your own life, that it can be difficult for a group to refresh heading into a World Cup. And, and, and so it played out that Ireland were tired and, you know, looked out of ideas. But look, I mean, mentally and physically kind of washed, emotionally washed as well. But... You know, you look this year and Ireland won a really high-pressure game against France where it was a shootout at that point. And then it was just about Ireland not messing up the rest of the time because it was either going to be France or ourselves who were going to win the, the Grand Slam or the Six Nations this year, I feel. And they played out that way. So Ireland, that, that, like that game against France in the Aviva was a home game. like, And it was a knockout game to a certain extent. And we won it and we performed really, really well there against a very, very good team in France. And I suppose my worry is, is that the vast majority of this team um, this year, when it's come to their big games that they've played, they have not played outside of Ireland. And they've not played outside the Aviva Stadium, actually. And I'm talking about the bulk of the team that's going to contest the World Cup being uh, the bulk of the Leinster team. They have played the majority of their big games in the Aviva Stadium since January, February of this year. Um, and that in itself, for me, is an issue. There was, of course, a challenging away game. I think it was against Scotland. Um, <laughs> I, I, look back at, I look back at that game there last week. And oh my God, how Scotland didn't win that. There should have been lads sacked on the day. But that's beside the point. I'm looking at since then, like Ireland's big game there was against France and they were against England were always a dangerous team and, and that uh, they were they were a difficult enough team for you know for a while in, in, in that in that contest but we're looking for the rest of that Leinster team they played the majority of their games at home all the way to the final of the European Cup um, and like my worry is is that we've got a game coming up now this weekend against Italy which I'm going to get to in a second we're playing England at home as well and that you would imagine would be a kind of a a game where you'd see close to what I think Ireland will be looking to bring in, in the World Cup itself but we have to look at our overall schedule too because we're playing uh, Samoa in the uh, Stade Jean Doguerre in uh, the 26th of August and that's going to run us up um, to the big game which is coming on the 23rd of September so for me those two home games the one this weekend and coming up uh, on the 19th they're going to be very important for um, for Ireland in getting set what we're doing as a group from a conce- from a conceptual perspective. There's obviously, there's places up for grabs as well and guys will be looking at that. I think we're going to see two different builds, certainly in the pack in those games. But I look at that run of three games against Samoa, against uh, Romania and then against Tonga as being sort of an opportunity where you can run the team up to full strength and mix and match different people in there against teams that we should be beating on paper. I know I just spoke about 2007 and there was teams that we should have been beating on paper there as well and, and, and we really struggled. But those three games look like a sort of a, an on-ramp for that game against the Springboks on the 23rd of September. That's on the 20... I'm, I'm looking at tracking the, the Springboks as well. That's coming up uh, in the next couple of days after I see uh, their game against Argentina to get a rough idea of where they're at. Not in a great place at the moment, but that could be deceptive as well. But these games that are coming up, the majority of what we've played this year and what we will play when it comes to formative games for this group have been at home. And that's something that's a concern to me in one way because 
we'll have a, a big crowd that's going to be there um, and a big supportive Irish team that's going, like that, or crowd that's going to be there to support us over in France but they will not be home games so that comes a different pressure that this group won't have experienced too much of as well like that warm up game coming up against England I think you'll see England more or less go fairly strong for that as well to kind of get a, a good run out to see where they're at so that's our last big game until we start heading into the main show so I'm a bit a little bit concerned about that about from a battle hardened perspective where are we at and where can we be by the time we come up to that big big decider for me which is that game against the Springboks if we can win that on the 23rd of September we've got um, pretty much two weeks before we play Scotland so the schedule is kind enough um, it gives us an opportunity to get the run up to that big game which is almost like a sort of a half a knockout game really if you just look at the rankings you know and you look at how many times Ireland have beaten Scotland in the last number of years I know they like they could be a you know different kettle of fish at the World Cup but you know you you, you would back Ireland right now uh, looking at that game and looking at that fixture in advance so it's all set up there for for Ireland to have a, a really good crack at that quarter final I know we're going to be looking at that first game of the tournament uh, France versus the All Blacks that has a massive factor on Ireland's progression um, and how you know we will be looking at the at the tournament but you know win all your games and you'll win the World Cup which is one of those stupid reductions that you look at and go well yeah duh <laughs> but I think looking from, from Ireland's point of view like it's set up with the way that we've gone over the last couple of, of, of months um, and with the, the couple of games to come there's no excuses for me and it all starts uh, this weekend where we've got Ireland versus Italy in the Aviva Stadium at the ridiculous hour at 8 o'clock on a Saturday evening um, so there's been a lot of discussion I'm not going to go into the Italian team I mean to an extent you look at friendlies like this and I know Andy Farrell said oh there's no friendlies at the Aviva Stadium and all this other kind of stuff but this is a friendly it is a warm up I think investing too much into these either way is a recipe for getting yourself into a bit of a heap. Now, at the same time, I am aware that getting absolutely walloped in a pre-season friendly, uh, which these are essentially, um, like Ireland did ahead of the last World Cup, is obviously not good. I think there's a couple of different things I'm looking for here rather than did Ireland win the game? Because Italy have come pretty strong, so they've got one more game under their belt so that means one more review um, Ireland are kind of going in this is their first game of, of, of the season their first game as a group so we'll get to see a lot of the stuff that they've been working on um, since they've come back and, and into this kind of World Cup pre-season um, and I suppose like with that comes like I suppose the reality that, that you should accept that we're not going to see a massive difference in the way that Ireland play um, like Ireland have been, you know, playing quite a progressive style of rugby, you know, by, by test level standards um, over the last couple of years. I think you go back to the Six Nations just gone. I think the Ireland were at their most efficient. Um, there's a few holes in Ireland's game that I'm going to be getting to in the um, World's Most Wanted series. But, you know, for the most part, I think Ireland played really well in the Six Nations, obviously won a grand slam off the back of that. But Ireland have been playing very, very well in a very settled style for the last year and a bit. Ireland are the most cohesive uh, team in the world at tier one level. Like there are other teams 
at tier two level or whatever else that are majority like that they're, they're like they're they're majority made up of team of, of players who only really play with each other um in the same units and whatever else there's such a conversation now at the moment actually by the way on building cohesion and building that you know uh player to player like is in you know within units to build that cohesion as a group heading into the World Cup that is such a strong need on all the teams now and I think they're I mean you look at the likes of the Springboks you look at the likes of um, the likes of you know the All Blacks France England everybody they're all going to be trying to build cohesion ahead of that um, World Cup and basically approach it like a club team as much as possible because that's the sort of cohesion like club team level cohesion that you will need to have to have any chance of winning this World Cup. Now, the 2019 World Cup was an outlier to a certain extent in that the Springboks, with such a boiled down and, I mean, foolproof style of play to a certain extent, they had kick pressure, heavy kick pressure. What did they have? Two really good kickers at halfback in Fafter Clark and Andrea Pollard. They had a really good midfield who defensively were outstanding in Locanio Am and Damien Damien Dielende also guys who were really good at set piece hit ups you had the best pack I think in the world at that point who didn't need to play an overly complex style of rugby basically just go out there and fuck up the opposition that was the job they were given and they would be able to do that job very very satisfactorily and the rules at the time I think really suited or the laws my god I'm going to have the rugby committee on my back um, again, so you look at the 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 way that they're the laws of the game. I think basically matched up so well with the Springbok style of play that they went to a World Cup. That I think and, and one that I think not many people expected of expected of them beforehand. And I think that this time around they're going to find it more difficult. But from an Irish perspective, like we have to make sure that what we're doing doesn't get you know go out of date a couple of you know weeks before the tournament starts and then find yourself under the pump and um, with the way that the game is played now like the, like this game is still in its relative in- infancy from a, a professional perspective so there are going to be evolutions in the game in what works and what doesn't and what works to the point where it gets you those extra few percentage points over the line and, and wins you a world cup um for ireland what we know what what has worked for Ireland. We're the most cohesive team in the world. Um, like I said, South Africa managed to get around that with their style of play, but everybody else, and even South Africa this time around, are looking to build that unit within unit, within system, within overarching framework, cohesion. And if you can get that before anybody else and you have the quality, you will more than likely get very close to winning this World Cup. And that's the aim. Ireland have been untouchable in that regard. So to the fact that I think if you were to ask anybody to name the Irish starting 15, I think, with everybody fit, I think most people would have the same names and in the same order. Like, I would just say off the top of my head, just to give you an example, if I was to think of the Irish starting 15, I would go with in the front row, Andrew Porter, Dan Sheehan, Tyg Furlong. Second row. Um, I'm going to go with Tygburn and and uh, James Ryan. Back row, Pedro Manny, Josh van der Fleer, Caelan Doris. At halfback, Jamison Gibson-Park, Johnny Sexton. Midfield, 
Robbie Hinshaw, Gary Ringrose. Back three, James Lowe, Mack Hansen, Hugo Keenan. That's been more or less set in stone for more or less, I would say, the last two seasons. There's been a few fellas dipping in and out here and there, but I think that's what most people, that would be the the the, the guts of the team that most people would name. Certainly in the pack, that'd be very, very close to it. With a few, maybe one or two switches here or there. But that's basically how they've done it. Unit within unit, Ireland have ridiculous levels of cohesion. In the front row, they all play and train with each other. And this goes for starting. And for the most part, the guys who come off the bench, there's a lot of in-unit cohesion there. You look at your back five, like the Irish back row, right? Not of the guys who might be swing players who could be, you know, play second row or back row. Peter Romani, Josh van der Fleer, Caelan Doris, Jack Conan have played so many minutes over the last number of seasons. They know each other inside out. Halfback, if you're looking at Gibson Park and Sexton, they play and train with each other every week of the year they're working. So, like, that all adds up. That all, you know, adds up, especially with the style of play that, that Ireland play being so similar to Leinster and Leinster being so heavily represented in the team. That all adds up. And it's... it's, it's when Ireland are really rolling especially up against teams who are kind of just coming together like they're not invitational teams but they're coming together relatively late they don't have a whole lot of time together we end up like looking like a different side altogether to these teams like who look like they're kind of going like what the hell are they doing you know whereas Ireland look so smooth everything looks so like like relaxed everything looks so like easy to click together like it, 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 like I said it is that club team versus test side where you look at November games and look you could look at like Munster versus the the, like the, the spring box I'm going to say the world champion spring box last year in November um, but you look at that and you go um, like on paper that was a fantastic spring box side world champion spring box side sorry um, with a ton of big names um, and a ton of guys who would later go on to go on and, and play for, for the Springboks later on that, that that last season and coming into the last couple of weeks. But Munster playing train with each other every week. They had been going through a lot of you know ups and downs over the previous months, came in and looked by far the better team. Because they they play and train with each other every week. That cohesion is what every test side wants. So because of that. Ireland are in a particularly vulnerable position where say for example we have half the injury issues that we did in the 2015 quarterfinal against Argentina where we'll say there was five really important Irish players who were missing from that team let's just let's just put it to three right if we were to miss um Caelan Doris if we were to miss Josh van der Fleer if we were to miss Johnny Sexton if we were to miss Andrew Porter, I'm just going to go with four, right? That Irish team is in big trouble. Big trouble. And you might go, well, look, every team who misses their best players are in big trouble. And that is true. But I will say this, is that Ireland are so reliant on the guys who have built up the vast majority of the minutes over the last four years that anybody who comes in to replace them now is doing so without a whole lot of minutes to back them up coming into that. They may come in and have a stormer, they may not. But I suppose the fact that it's up in the air and that these are question marks that we might still have is an issue. And I think this is something that they've realised at the high performance unit level as well. 
you look at the A tour element of the New Zealand tour last year, the Emerging Ireland tour, the A internationals in the November uh, series just gone. All that is an attempt to build up minutes into the guys who I think, were it not for COVID, were it not for the really bad start that Ireland had, might well have been getting their minutes a little more gradually brought in um, over the previous four years when, when Farrell first took charge. And to an extent, they had to microwave a lot of those minutes, you know, pr- pretty rough and ready. So we are where we are to a certain extent, and there's no point relitigating that now. The selections that I think that Andy Farrell will do over the next number of weeks, um, certainly in these first two against Italy and England, are going to be important because I think, certainly looking at this team sheet, that they're going to experiment with role duplicates and different builds of roles in their back five, depending on who they have available. Let's get to the team here. We will start with the most important players on the field, the forwards. Um, Okay, here we go. We have Dave Kilcoyne, Rob Herring and Tom O'Toole starting uh, in the front row. On the bench, we have Tom Stewart as replacement hooker, Keen Healy and Tyke Furlong. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that he didn't want to use Andrew Porter for this game. Remember, everybody here is fit. The only fellow who's unavailable is Johnny Sexton. So they wanted to save Andrew Porter for next week against England. So that can give, and, and Dan Sheehan is also not present. So that's two of what we might call the starting um, front row and a lot of the front row units here that typically we've seen over the last number of years. Dave Kilcoyne is starting, Keane Healy is on the bench. These are number two and number three, with Keane Healy being number two, Kilcoyne being number three in that loose head depth chart at the moment for Ireland over the last number of years, with Porter being the number one since he made the switch. So they're seeing which one of those guys is going to be, is going to be a better fit to go in behind Porter when the serious games roll around. Easy enough one. You look at Hooker. You've Rob Herring and you've Tom Stewart. Tom Stewart is coming in as his first cap. He's a young player. He's played really well this season. He scored an awful lot of tries. We know he's a good like he's a, he's a good line-out operator because the vast majority of his tries have come from the back of a line-out that, or line-out mall that he is obviously thrown into. But he's athletic. He's quick. He's a decent carrier in the wide channels as well. Um... That's somebody who I feel could match up pretty well with what Dan Sheehan brings to a certain extent. Obviously, Dan Sheehan is a bit of a unicorn, but you look at Tom Stewart, there's lots of similarities in what they bring from a role perspective there as well. So we get to see, from a role perspective, can Tom Stewart give us elements of what Dan Sheehan does? If yes, that's obviously really good. And they started here with Rob Herring, because Rob Herring is one of the most reliable hookers out there. They, they know exactly what they're going to get from Rob Herring. And I think that, like, he's a guy who rarely has a poor game. Like, he's a really solid thrower. He's a good defender. He's a decent carrier. Like, you don't really have to worry too much about what Rob Rob Herring's going to do. He's like a safety blanket guy. You put him in there and everything's all good. So they have a guy where they know in the second half, well, we're going to bring on Tom Stewart. Ideally, if there's no injuries, we'll bring on Tom Stewart. We'll be more or less bringing on Tyke Furlong at the same time, along with Keane Healy. We know Keane Healy is quite a you know, very solid scrummager this, um, in this day and age in the, on the loose head side. So that area of the game, that unit, you know, Stewart and Healy, you know, if you were to pair with anybody from a scrummaging perspective, you would you would put up a Keane Healy of the fellas that are selected. So, um, with Tyke Furlong on the other side of him you're putting him in the best position to succeed there I feel so you can get the best look at him from a role perspective essentially 
if we decide to bring Tom Stewart, do we get, and if you're going to bring, you know, four hookers, which I think for the most part, a lot of teams do that. And maybe with the extra two players, it's 33-man squads. Maybe they'll feel more comfortable bringing four hookers now. Basically, he has an audition here to show that he can be that Dan Sheehan role set guy. And if they, if if he does well, I think he'll be in a great spot to come along just as one of the four. Because if they decide to take four, they're they're basically they're basically looking at look Ronan Kelleher, who's also not selected here. I could see him benching next week or maybe starting with, with Dan Sheehan coming on. I think they'll be the two hookers next week. They'll be assessing Kelleher. His fitness hasn't been great. They're going to keep an eye on him, but. I think looking at that, you know, starting unit and bench unit, I think you can get a good idea as to the role sets they're looking to assess. And, you know, because again, they have a game to win also, you know, because they want, there's no point in going out there with a completely, you know, bullshit pack because you'll get beaten up and then nobody look good, right? So looking into the second row, they have Ian Henderson captaining and Joe McCarthy next to him with Ty Byrne on the bench. That's their uh, second row unit. Again, pretty easy to understand uh, Joe McCarthy they want to see is he a potential role duplicate for James Ryan do they get elements of the same thing from him uh, Ian Henderson you know he's a guy he needs minutes anyway but steady hand he's a guy he's got a lot of experience uh, no brainer to captain this team um, he can get in there and call the line out as well he does that for Ulster he'll do it for Ireland here no bother at all and to help out because Joe McCarthy there is not the most accomplished line-out jumper going. They've got Ryan Baird in at six. Now, he's in there in that half-lock style role. So, you know, you can forget about, like, the numbers in the back here, especially when it comes to Caelan Doris. But Ryan Baird will play more or less where Peter O'Manny does. As in, he's, I, th- I can see him being primarily an edge forward. I think the big things here for um, Ireland, at least the start, is um, can... Ian Henderson and Joe McCarthy can they beef up that basically the middle of the field ball carrying because we've got a lot of edge forwards here someone's going to have to play slightly out of position um, ideally I would like to have Ryan Baird in the wider channels I think he's a, just such an explosive athlete I think it makes most sense to have him in the position where he can be most dangerous you see Caelan Doris here has seven on his back forget about open side or whatever else he'll still be playing the same way as he does and because he's basically Ireland's utility wrench in the back row you can put him in seven and it doesn't matter like his he has only so many starts at open side or whatever else like it's not like he's goal kicking do you know what I mean he's still playing more or less the same game because I've seen him play games for Ireland where he has been a primary ball carrier where he has been a primary ruck support player and primary defender I've seen him being a guy who's been heavily involved in the line out I've seen him not involved at all he does a little bit of everything and it's part of why he's been so vital and so used for um for Andy Farrell is that he can basically do a bit of everything and him wearing seven here is not oh well he's going to be trying to do his best Josh van der Fleer impression you might see him in the plus one at the line out you might see him defending in midfield off the line out as well but at the same time like I'm looking for if I'm Andy Farrell I'm thinking what do my back five as a unit look like if I have to use Caelan Doris there as a supplementary guy and we'll say if we put Jack Conan at number 8 like if I have to mix and match like that say Josh van der Fleer gets injured we've got a big game coming up but I don't want to take Doris out of the, D- D- Doris out, and I want to leave Peter Romani in how do I fit those three guys because they're the three guys I've used the most so it stands to reason they're the guys he'd be most likely to use in a World Cup in a knockout game 
how does that look? How does how does Kalen Doris fit in in a slightly altered role? Like m- what I'm interested in is if he is going to be carrying in a, in a central area, if he's going to be a raid off 10 or if he's going to take up an edge position. Uh, and what he I, I would imagine we're going to see a larger um breakdown output from him here. I I don't think we're going to see too much of um him being a primary ball carrier but again we don't know we don't know you have Jack Cohn and then starting at number 8 and uh, Kian Prendergast is on the bench in this unit uh, I think we'll see Kian Prendergast coming on for um, Ryan Baird uh, in, in, in the second half of this one if, if it all goes to plan with Ty Byrne coming in for Joe McCarthy or maybe coming in for Henderson depending on what they're doing but looking at Kian Prendergast he basically gets to show can he be a slightly heavier version of Peter Romani slightly taller version of Peter Romani and give them that back row lineout option who gives them basically sort of a heavy combo flanker style rule set they'll be interested to see if he can cover there as well so that unit because I've had a lot of people kind of going where's Gavin Coombs to be honest I think Gavin Coombs for me is more likely to feature against England now I think they'll want to see him almost like an auxiliary second row where he won't be starting in the second row at you know wearing four or five or, or 19 but that he will essentially carry and he will his role set will be indistinguishable from Ireland's locks which is that they carry the ball an awful lot and that in a way he could be useful there as a swingman if they're in a position where because if again if you look at that Irish back row there's not there's no heavy ball carriers there like if I'm looking at the Irish pack I'm looking at heavy ball carriers I'm seeing Kilcoyne I'm seeing O'Toole I'm seeing Henderson and McCarthy and the rest of them like Baird, Doris and Conan that's not really what they do best they're more edge forwards so like again you see Furlong coming in he can kind of play off 9 he can he can rotate off 10 Keen Healy is absolutely only off 9 now and Tom Stewart again is more of an edge forward Burn, a bit of a unicorn but better off 10 I would say and better in the wide channels although he, he can truck it up off 9 too but I would say he's better served in those outer areas Prendergast I think is kind of the same there's not a whole like that's not a big heavy ball carrier rotation there Stuart McCluskey will essentially be playing like another ball carrying back row but this is kind of where we're at with Coombs in that I think that they like him as a sort of a half lock style guy where even if he's wearing six or eight or whatever else he will allow them to play a slightly lighter second row so maybe you could start with Tyburn and maybe Treadwell for example or someone like that and maybe go with Omani and Van der Fleer who I could easily see starting alongside him they're slightly lighter they're kind of more I won't say they're like they're 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 not as good ball carriers but they're certainly edge first players as in they're far better in the edge spaces you still need to pack your middle of the field and you could also play a slightly lighter midfield with Gavin Coombs at number eight as well. That's what it allows you to do, I feel. So they could be looking at that as a, as different builds, different different ways to kind of get, get the system running as they know they can run it. Because I think we know like what Ireland's team is going to be when they you know hit the South Africa game. I think we have a fair idea what that's going to be, you know, barring injury, obviously. But they need to have a look at, well, if we have to adjust, how can we get different role sets in here? How can we make what we do, which is a you know kind of a, a heavy you know kind of a heavy counter transition game? How do we play that? And is there different ways we can approach that build, and 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 make it work without necessarily having the exact same guys in the exact same roles? Because they don't have guys in that exact same role. Like you look at it, like 
Josh van der Fleer isn't playing today but there is no direct role duplicate for Josh van der Fleer in this team like if they were going to do something like that they maybe would have brought Scott Penny or they might have brought uh, John Hodnett or Alex Kendallin or Nick Timoney these are guys who are similar enough to Josh van der Fleer from a role build perspective but they didn't bring anybody in like that so as we can see here they feel that Caelan Doris can basically round out what they like in the in that back five at, and he's not the same kind of player as, as Josh van der Fleer at all they're very very different players but you can see what they're trying to do in the aggregate it's about what the unit can do rather than the individual so I think we may see Coombs next week um, again or uh, in, in two weeks time against England and that in itself would be quite interesting to see if they can make that work and uh, how those pack units will interact with each other they've gone for a very interesting halfback pairing Craig Casey and Jack Crowley um, these guys have a lot of in-unit cohesion together with, with, with each other as well um, from you know like you're looking at Jack Conan here like the 8, 9, 10 relationship is kind of overdone you know because that kind of goes back to the scrum and there used to be far more scrums than what there is now um, but you look at like what we're seeing from Casey and Crowley over the last couple of months with Munster was is that they're really good at getting with off nine because Casey's passing obviously is really good really strong is really quick Jack Crowley was really impressing as the season wore on because he was so dangerous with, with the ball in hand himself so athletic he was a constant threat and I think that to work the counter transition phase play that Ireland do which is that 3-2x where you've got three forwards you've got the 10 on the screen behind the three you've got somebody else running behind the screen of two how you use your options as a 10 in those moments is very very important that's what Jack Crowley would have to show here he's also got to show a range of kicking as in can he manage the momentum battle of counter transition against an Italian team who are likely to hang on to the ball for quite a bit that can be quite worrisome for a 10 in that my you know your game plan is well we want to kick and they're going to kick back to us and then we're going to make a call on do we attack on this or do we kick again and put them under pressure again and then you know it's kind of a momentum battle if Italy play as on ball as what they did against Scotland the likes of Jack Crowley and Craig Casey could be kicking the ball to Italy and then Italy might not be giving that ball back and that's the worry is that if we can't force them from a defensive perspective into making errors or into kicking the ball back, um, our our halfbacks, I think, initially, once we settle into the counter-transition game, might be under pressure. And this is where you need to see, I think, early on, utilising possession early, regardless of the position, to have a right cut off them, to get yourself into the game early and not overcompensate or overcomplicate the kicking game too much until you actually get into the swing of the game. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how they go. Obviously, they look like a potentially long-term halfback pairing at national level, but there's lots of road to travel there yet. Uh, in midfield, they've gone with Robbie Henshaw and uh, Stuart McCluskey. Another pretty easy decision. Uh, Henshaw, I think, and this, it's, this, this is not an issue for Ireland, by the way, in that Ireland's 13 is not really a creative position it's a defensive pressure position it's a um, strike running position and it's a um, offensive breakdown position I think Robbie Henshaw is more than capable of doing that as well he's a good dangerous strike strike runner but he's got good work rate as well and he's a decent kicker of the ball also that could be pretty important on the edge spaces here as well you have Stuart McCluskey who has rounded himself out into a really well balanced complete player in midfield now great ball carrier good offloader um, 
I'm wondering here if he might be a bit under under pressure to maybe expand his game a little bit too much away from what he's good at. But we'd have to see how that shakes out. Again, he's an easy bailout option for Jack Crowley as well if they need to reset. He's a decent option, more than decent option off the line out. Really dangerous runner. Um, a fellow who will just constantly create compressions. And that's something that the likes of Crowley can work with. The difference between Crowley and Ross Byrne, and I think to an extent Kieran Frawley, is how athletic he is, how quick he is, how explosive he is, how agile he is. It'll be up to him to use McCluskey as a compressor, as a, as a, as a compression agent, we'll say. Um, because from a back row perspective, we don't have massively explosive ball carriers to, to, to force in that compression. We have good handlers, and, and that's certainly something that Crowley can use. But uh, Stuart McCluskey and Robbie Henshaw looks like a fairly well-balanced midfield trio to me. Obviously, uh, Quaylen Blade, Kieran Frawley, and Calvin Nash are on the bench. But you look at Kieran Frawley, we could easily see him coming in at 12 also. I'm interested to see where he's actually going to slot in here. If he comes in at 10, um, obviously there's going to be a bit of pressure between himself and Crowley to you know, run the system properly as opposed to, you know, na- obviously you've got to nail your kicks at goal, but I think they're looking at more than just a points tally at the end of the game here for the 10. It's that how much can you run, how well and efficiently can you run the system? Um, and that's going to be interesting. In the back three, Jimmy O'Brien at fullback, Keith Earls winning his 99th cap uh, at uh, on, on the right wing with Jacob Stockdale uh, in the number 11 jersey and Calvin Nash on the bench. Huge opportunity for Calvin Nash. Like It's his debut for Ireland, ideally, if he gets on the field, which he surely will. Um, he's really rounded out his game over the last number of, um, I'd say over the last 12 months, but he's been building for a while. More than deserves this opportunity as well. He's been fantastic all season long, just because of how complete he is. He's a really good kicker of the ball. Obviously, he's really dangerous with the ball in hand as well. But he's got an ability now to create. Um, never mind stepping in on the screen and 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 you know be be brave with his passing and and you know working in off his wing, which again is part of the scheme for Munster. But he's really good at that. He's got that X factor, which is you need it as a winger. Like there's always going to be a role for functional wingers, guys who are, you know, they know their role inside out. They don't make a whole ton of mistakes. There's always going to be room for guys like that. But for me, you need to have a guy who can create something out of nothing. And this year, Calvin Nash did that a good few times. That's going to be his difference his point of difference I feel in, in that back three. Jacob Stockdale comes in at eleven. They're looking for him to basically can you give us a role set that's similar to James Lowe and sort of similar to Mac Hansen? Paul O'Connell called out um, Jacob Stockdale's big boot in the presser. He will be needed to exit and he will be needed to, you know, play counter-transition starters um, in the same way that James Lowe does. That's his role here in this game. Can you show the, like, the variety and the quality in kicking that James Lowe does? If he does he'll be in a great spot to fill in there because they they love Jacob Stockdale. He was on a central contract, you know, I think up to his latest renewal. Um, obviously, he's a guy who they've invested time in previously. He had a great start at Ireland. He's had a rough time with injuries and, and getting himself right. But I think that's a guy there who, if they can get him back up to speed, that would make a lot of people very happy in the high-performance unit because at his, at his best, he's a fantastic player, central contract worthy but he hasn't been at that best for a while. I don't think he needs to overplay here. He just needs to basically demonstrate that he is his handling is improved, that he's capable of playing as a layered handler, but his kicking is very important. How he handles that is very important. Um, Keith Earl starting on the right wing, 
look the fucking man what can you say about him that no, that I haven't said a million times before or that other people haven't said absolutely top quality player instantly ups the experience level and, intelli- and, and, and intellect of any back three or outside back line he's playing in he typically is a low error rate player uh, exactly the guy you'd want in a you know not a janky but like I mean a lot of this outside back line they will not have played together as a unit before Keith Earls is a bit of a glue guy that way he will mix and match and he will make sure he fills the gaps that, that are almost certain to be there and Jimmy O'Brien uh, is at fullback he is the nominated backup to Hugo Keenan I would say in that they're they're quite similar they're kind of all-rounders without necessarily being outstanding at any one thing and then unbalanced at another they're very steady Hugo Keenan and Jimmy O'Brien um, I think that Jimmy O'Brien is slightly worse in the air than Hugo Keenan is but I would be surprised if we saw a whole ton of um, aerial bombs from um, the Italian side. They may look to try and play because, again, on-ball teams do box kick and part of their game is creating that chaos under a box kick. Jimmy O'Brien will come under a bit of pressure there, but I don't think he's going to be massively in that position in the same way that you don't, you rarely see Hugo Keenan under a high ball on the wing unless there's a you know an, an imbalance has happened somewhere. So all in all, I, took it, I think it's set up to be a very interesting looking team. Obviously, I'm not doing a red eye for this because I have no reference point for, for Ireland up until this point, but I'll be doing a green eye rather ahead of the England game with the information that we've gotten from this game. So that's going to be an interesting one to see how it plays out. I'm going to be doing a TRK live stream after this game if I can, um, but it might well be Sunday in the afternoon or evening. Um to just kind of catch up with a live stream on the game along with a Wally ratings along with a uh, five star podcast after the game as well as well as that roundup of all the other games in another podcast that I'm doing uh, which is going to be looking at Scotland South Africa all the teams who are playing this weekend as we build up to the World Cup in a couple of weeks time so thank you very much for joining me thank you very much for being a tier K subscriber I will talk to you again very very soon it's got to